All right. Today I am joined with Professor Theodore Parrish. Okay. Thank you for that. And I'm actually really excited for this one because of just how big of an impact her research has, especially nowadays. So um, she focuses on mostly social media. And I think it's really cool because social media plays such a huge role, especially in this coming um, generation and just and everyone's life now, just because of the huge technological aspect that we see in our society today. Um, so do you want to give yourself a quick intro, Professor? Yeah, so um, my name's Ann Oder Parrish, put the first name in there now. Um, I'm a very recently now associate professor in the Department of Communication here at UConn. Um, so I've been here about six years now. I teach media effects, uh, communication technology, social media, computer media communication. So you can see the common theme there. So my research is really about mostly social media, but a little bit more broadly about communication technology, um, human-computer interaction. So really everything about how we use technology to communicate with each other, but also with ourselves or just to the technology itself and sort of how do we do that and what are the effects of that. Cool, cool. So there's there's two main things I want to talk about. And I guess we can jump straight into, I guess, the mental health aspect of mm-hmm. like social media. Um, so there, I mean, obviously there's the the likes aspect of social media, there's the comments, there's the, um, there's, the I remember cyberbullying was a big mm-hmm. thing a couple of years back. I don't know. I haven't really heard too much about it lately. Um, but cyberbullying like pertains to more just the whole internet, not just social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I, I know you've get, given a lot of talks about it and done a lot of research uh, or read a lot of research about um, the mental health aspect of social media. So can you kind of um, help me better understand kind of what are the different facets and um, how that, how those affect us? Yeah, so that's such a big question right now that I think a lot of us are trying to figure out the answer to. Um, and you see everything kind of like what you said with cyberbullying. So there is the fear that, oh, this is a space that uh, you know, we can be anonymous, we don't have to face people, um, so we can be quite mean to people, we can be uh, a lot worse in this space than we might be face-to-face um, offline. Um, but then on the other extreme, we see, you know, the nice stories of, oh, I can connect to people who I haven't seen in a long time, I can connect to people in other countries, maybe that I can't see physically, extended family, um, especially now with COVID, right now we're seeing all the potential benefits of how we might still be able to connect. And so there's not really a clear answer um, in terms of is it just bad or good. So where researchers are right now, we're really trying to figure out the nuances of that. So yes, we do see some negative effects of things like relying on those likes, right? So much of wanting the validation of social media. Um, but, But then we do also see positive effects of connection, friendship, um, potentially, you know, making new connections or kind of building up old ones and building what we might call capital. So this idea that we have resources in our networks. So I think the answer right now is trying to parse out what leads to what. Um, So for instance, the more passively we use social media, the worse the effects tend to be. So if we're just kind of scrolling through, looking at everybody else's stuff, and saying like, oh, everybody's got this great life, nobody liked this thing I posted, whatever. 
um, versus if we're more actively going in and saying, here's what's going on with me. Here's a discussion I want to start. Here's a conversation I want to have. Um, that tends to have more positive effects. And that's just one example of this kind of active versus passive use. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of coming down to how we choose to use these media that they really just amplify a lot of the ways that we could communicate otherwise that make things better or worse for us as well. Why do you think that for the most part, more in, in a general sense that whenever we are more passive that there are more negative effects seen? Yeah, that's a good question. So this is, like I've said, one of the areas that researchers have focused on. And I think it comes down to this sense of kind of having agency or having control. So if I go in and post something, I'm sort of controlling that conversation. And also, quite frankly, you're pulling the attention on yourself, right? So as, as superficial as that sounds, that is something that we seek from our networks that we want some attention, we want some validation. Um, and we might get that into response to things that we post versus if we're just onlookers, we see that attention going to other people, we see the conversation kind of being controlled by other people. Um, so that, that would be my guess based on what I've seen. Okay. And um, so there's kind of this dual side of social media where you're the viewer and you're also the producer. Mm -hmm. um, so, and so there is also like, as you said, it's good to have like the spotlight on you and whatnot, but there is also that sense of wanting to experience like other people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and my question is, why do you, why do we, why do you think we have that feeling of like wanting to experience other people's lives? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think again, social media, I don't know that it does something different than other types of media. It just does it in a more customized, sort of um, hyper-focused sort of way. And I'm thinking, for instance, about like TikTok, right? Everybody can sit there forever and watch just TikTok video after TikTok video. And why, why do we do that? Um, you know, one, we have the algorithm sort of curating exactly what we want to see. Um, but also I think there's just this curiosity about experiences that aren't our own. And I think it's the same reason that we were very interested in movies, right? That we follow certain characters, um, that we're interested in certain plots, that we sort of expect certain plot lines. And so I think in a way we're searching that same thing with social media, um, but now we have more opportunities and more kind of customized opportunities for that, right? So a TikTok video can focus in on exactly the experience that I wanna see in a way that a movie that everybody gets maybe doesn't, um, yeah. Hmm. I never, I've never really thought about it in, in a sense of, I guess, a movie. And I, I, I totally understand that point. I feel like I, I was looking at it more of like, oh, like this person's doing this, this, and this. Like, I'm jealous of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess it does make sense. I guess, and, and, you, and you compare it with TikTok, which is interesting because like that's more of, that's definitely like, you're watching content like n not made by like usually people in your closer social network. Mm -hmm. It's usually random people that you don't really know much about. Whereas if you look at like Instagram or Facebook, those your feed is usually people you know, family members, friends, coworkers, people in your closer social sphere. Um, so maybe there is a difference in that aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Because I did 
So I jumped to TikTok because that's kind of what I've been seeing. Um, but that is generally people you don't know, which is an interesting aspect versus the sort of known network. So clearly both are providing us with something like we can connect with the people we know, but there is some reason we're also craving mm. connecting with people we don't know, or at least seeing yeah. them. Maybe we don't connect, right? Maybe they never know that we <laughs> watch their video, but um, mm. seeing what's going on with them, for some reason, we are very interested in that. Yeah. And and going back to um, the Facebook and what I, I see that you've done a lot of research with Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really want to jump into that um, particularly. Um, there was um, just the aspect and the, the most like pretty much honestly, I think the most basic aspect of social media is um, uploading pictures of yourself or mm-hmm. pictures of events that you went to or meetings or parties blah, 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 get togethers. Um, I feel, I feel like that's the fundamental aspect of, of social media. And, and you do some research on like, okay, like why, why do we feel the need to post? Like what are the aspects of posting? Um, what, why do we want to post? Um, so I really want to jump into that question of Mm -hmm. like, what are some of the, I guess, predictors or factors that play into, oh, I feel like posting a picture today because da 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 da. Yeah, so I had done um, the, this one study, it was published in 2016, but it was, the data was collected years before that, which often happens with research. Um, and so when I was looking at this, it really was in terms of Facebook and we use focus groups and surveys to try to figure out, okay, but why do you post a picture? Yeah. Like really what's the underlying motivation? And we came up with these four different factors that sort of explained this, right? We took all the responses and said, what are some of the commonalities here? Um, And it really was mostly about kind of showcasing your experience. But one of the other factors that I think was really interesting, because that one seems kind of obvious, like, okay, you want to share your experience, maybe you want to connect with people. Um, But we did also find that a lot of people mentioned what we would call the affordances of the technology. So that that means what do they allow us to do? And so the fact that it was becoming easier and easier to share, that alone seemed to kind of motivate people. And so, yes, I'd like to share what I'm doing. And while it's so easy to just upload a photo on the Facebook now, um, and now other sites as well, but at the time it was Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was kind of this perfect combination of like, I have this underlying need to share with people what I'm doing, um, which we've always had and to connect with them. But then why would I do it here? Well, it's pretty easy to do that here right it's easier to just post on Facebook than to print out these photos and mail them to people or you know invite everybody over for a slideshow or something like that and and there do you think how big of a role do you think like self-presentation goes into that motivation of wanting to share with other people what we're doing and kind of like setting up this um, identity for other people to see Oh, absolutely. I think it would, it's probably the main thing that drives us, right? We have some reason to present ourselves in a way. Now we have this platform. We know we exist on this platform. And obviously not everybody does this. And I, I think that's what's really interesting is who does this and who doesn't. Um, but you're on this platform. You know that it's the norm to post something. So you think, okay, I'm going to join in on this. But we do a lot of what's called selective self-presentation, right? So I'm not going to post everything. I'm going to post the stuff that either 
makes me look really great or makes me relatable or it could be negative, but I know that I'm going to get a lot of support for what I'm writing. So there's some commiserating. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely selective self-presentation there. This idea that we do want to put forth an image of ourselves um, and that we kind of choose, well, this is going to work well there or look good there or is going to get the response I want and this isn't. So I'm going to take that away. Mm. And going off of that, like, oh, that probably won't give the response I want. Um, I'm going to take it away. Um, mm -hmm. you, you did some research about that, actually, of like what kind of, I guess, embarrassing um, pictures would people like take down or like what, mm -hmm. I guess, what are the aspects, what makes a picture embarrassing for someone? Mm -hmm. So what are the aspects that make a picture uh, embarrassed for someone or like why would someone feel not too comfortable with a picture being posted? Yeah, so the, the research we had done was an experiment where we were very interested in when, pe when people embarrass other people, right? Because they're doing exactly um, what you were trying not to do, right? So I have this selective way that I want to present myself and then someone else comes along and goes, yeah, but I know what you really did and I'm going to tell everyone about it. And then that's why it's embarrassing because it breaks that presentation that we're trying to maintain. Um, and so the experiment we had done was looking at what are the different types of what we would call violations. Um, and that builds on previous research which found that the reason it's embarrassing can be for a number of different reasons. And one can be that it actually um, revealed something about you that you didn't want anybody to know. Or it could just be that you revealed something about you that you just didn't want certain people to know, right? Like, yeah, it's cool if my friends know that I went to this party, but I really didn't want my mom to see that, right? So you've broken some sort of um, network boundary. And then there was this interesting, the most interesting finding to me was the ones that were embarrassing because they were just sort of brought up out of context. So people were really embarrassed when they themselves had posted a photo that they were perfectly happy with but it was from five years ago. And now somebody goes in there and likes it five years later and it pops back up on the feed. And that was strangely embarrassing just because it was this, it was like it was retrieving an old self, like a self that you were like, okay, I was done with that. And I sort of mentally put that away. Why are you dragging that back up? Because social media is so ephemeral, you know, meaning that it kind of goes away again quickly, or we think it does, or we want it to. And then we're sort of reminded like, you know, you've had all these selves over time on social media. Um, and we all sort of collectively agree that you don't refer back to those old selves. And so it's when somebody does that in itself can be really embarrassing. So, and I've, I've definitely do this now and in the past, and will continue to do this whenever I do post something with like other people in it. I am like, it, it, it's become the norm really to be like, Hey, like, are, like, are you comfortable with me mm -hmm. posting this? And sometimes they'd be like, eh, I don't really, I don't, I don't really look good enough or I don't mm -hmm. like that picture of me. So it's definitely like a real thing and super relevant. And, and my next question is, um, so you talk about like selective audiences and like, yeah obviously like oh yeah I didn't like really like want my mom to see that blah 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 blah. so do you think that and I, I think that's why um these new social media platforms are adding these like oh best friends list or like closest friends list private mm -hmm. stories or whatnot so you can have that that avenue to um share stuff with like a select group that you are comfortable with with sharing with 
Um, but I guess, so, so the research um, focused on like people posting um, quote unquote embarrassing pictures of someone else. So like the, the person who was embarrassed didn't post a picture themselves, <laughs> but it was someone else they may have known. So my question is, did, did you see or were you able to see like how that affected that relationship? like on a personal level? So in the, for this particular experiment, um, we had pairs of friends come in and do this. And so this is one of those psychological experiments where like we tell them at the end that nothing they did really had an impact. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully it didn't have any major consequences. So they didn't share pictures, but they shared posts. Um, and basically what one person did was say, you know, hey, here's this really embarrassing fact about my friend. And then the friend would see it in our other experimental room. It was actually set so that the friend was the only one who could see it. So nobody else in the network could see it. But it looked as though this had just been broadcast to their whole network. Um, and so we recorded their reactions and we were very interested in if that level of embarrassment that you might feel in person translates to online, which it does. Um, but at the end, as you would always do an experiment, we were very careful to debrief and say, this post wasn't actually seen by anybody mm -hmm. but you. Um, you've deleted it. You can go back in right now and make sure all your privacy settings are the way that you wanted. We had the best friend, the friends ask questions of each other, ask questions of us. So everybody was kind of clear and on the same page when they left the room. Um, so hopefully <laughs> no further um, effects of that since it was all, nobody actually saw anything. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, so the next um, aspect of social media that I want to get into and which is super um, relevant to um, current times is um, the, I guess, um, the, the, I guess we could jump into the pictivism um, mm -hmm. aspect of it. So do you want to explain what that means when I say pictivism? Yeah, so that was a term, there's a lot of iterations of this. So this was work I did actually with um, Professor Rory McGloin, who's also in our department and the communication department at UConn. Um, and he and I were just very interested in these acts that look like you're being an activist, but you know we don't know how much is behind that. So it comes from, um, so there's activism, and then there was the term slacktivism. So this idea that you do these very easy things online, like, okay, you know, I signed the petition and I'm done. I've done my activism. Um, so slacktivism, that you're kind of slacking on it. And so then we went a little bit further and called that pictivism, um, that now you're sort of trying to look like you're an activist just by doing something as simple as changing your profile picture, um, which is not necessarily negative, right? But if we think of the hierarchy of the things that you can do in an activist realm, that's a pretty easy one. Um, mm -hmm. that you can say, here's my picture that I'm gonna put a filter over to show that I support a current event or that I'm standing in solidarity, solid, excuse me, solidarity with something that happened or something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that's what we mean by that. Yeah, and I, I think that is um, a super hot topic, especially now. I, I see a lot of friends and family um, doing that now. Mm -hmm. whether that be for Black Lives Matter or during when COVID, at least at the beginning of that, more like stay home, stay quarantined and whatnot. So mm -hmm. by whenever someone does do that, what did you see with like how, um, I guess, involved or knowledgeable about that certain movement? Like were they more 
could you see that they were more, I guess, involved and knowledgeable about that subject compared to people who didn't, I guess, change their profile picture? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So in the study we did, we actually um, looked at the people who had changed their picture and then sort of backtracked to see well, what predicted that action. Um, and so what we focused on are like, how could we predict who is going to do this? And that was sort of our end point. Um, so that would certainly be a good follow-up question to ask um, if they, I mean, I would assume they're more knowledgeable whether they take any other actions besides that or whether that correlates to any other um, things that they might do outside of social media, that, that would be a good question. But one thing we did look at was their network size and the people who had larger networks were more likely to do something like change their picture. Um, and so I think there is that sense of information, right? If you have a network where you're seeing that, then you probably do have some more information about that and then you are um, doing that yourself. And one thing that comes to mind, so Facebook in the last few years has added those frames. So now you don't even need to manually add your own picture. You can just say like, oh yes, I wanna add the frame for, mm. you know, say stay home, stay safe or Black Lives Matter um, to indicate that. So they've made it even easier and often the way we see those is that a friend has changed it and then you get that little notification like, hey, you can use this frame too. Um, so it's a very explicit kind of getting that knowledge from them. But whether that correlates with deeper knowledge or interest in the topic, um, that's a good question. Okay, so you talk about there, there is a correlation between the size of the network. So do you think that <laughs> the, it's just that, oh, I see everyone else doing it I better do it too to follow suit, even if like maybe I don't particularly have an opinion on the subject. I'm like, and eh, but everyone else is doing so, might as well do it. So almost, I don't want to say, I don't want to go as far as like a pluralistic ignorance where like, oh, I see they all believe it, but deep down I don't really believe it, but because it's the norm, I'm going to do it. Um, do you think that there's anything like that at play? Yeah, and I'm just thinking, and I, the, the hashtag that everybody was using right now, I'm blanking on, but just very recently we saw on Instagram, I saw it mostly on Instagram, um, but across all social media that people were just blacking out their mm -hmm. photo. Yeah. Um, so they were, it was in solidarity of Black Lives Matter, and they're saying like, right. today we're just going to focus on that. And so I think that's a perfect example where we saw something like that, because then the critique that came back, which is a valid critique is, well, is that all you're doing? You're going to change your profile picture black. And mm -hmm. if people don't know why you're doing that, or even if they do, you know, does that do anything more meaningful? So I think that was a very recent example of that. So I think we did see there that people felt like, oh, well, my whole feed's black. I have to make sure that I step into this too and show that like, yes, I, I know this is going on. You kind of show your awareness, you show your solidarity. Um, I think there is that sense of sort of peer pressure and then maybe you don't do anything else with it or maybe some people did. Okay. And also, did you, were you able to see any, um, any particular age groups or gender like do more of pictivism than compared to other like age groups or gender? Yeah, I think in the study we did, um, I would have to double check because we didn't really have any major predictions about that. Um, so I don't think we saw any age or gender effect. I would guess that we would see a younger crowd doing that more 
just because they tend to be more in line with kind of what's going on with social media. And, th and that's just a trend right, we yeah. always see with technology is that usually we'll see the younger people do it first, um, regardless of exact age or platform. Okay. Um, and you've also, and also going along with um, just changing your profile picture um, in support of whatever movement that may be, um, there's also the aspect of um, sharing stories, um, posting um, about stories on whatever your story or whatnot. Um, so, and you, you've also done some research on that. Um, so what did you, I guess, and I guess this comes more into play with the, uh, the knowledgeable aspect of it. So like when someone does share a story, um, you found that they tend to be more engaged with that story longer or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this has really been my main line of research. I started this with my dissertation 10 years ago. Um, and that was back when sharing news on social media wasn't really even the kind of thing that it is today. And so mm -hmm. I was even back in 2010 really interested in, well, what if people shared stories on Facebook? Would that get them more involved? Because there's a long-standing focus in um, news research on, you know, are people really paying attention to the news? Do they really read what they see? Do they really remember what they see? Even from television, um, that a lot of studies found like people don't really remember that much of what they saw on the TV news the night before. They remember some basics, some random facts maybe. And so social media seemed like this place where, again, because we can be sort of the producers of knowledge or at least the messengers of that knowledge that maybe here's a space where I can say like well I found this story interesting so I'm going to share it now and see if I can get people to talk about it and maybe that will be sort of the magic <laughs> that lets people get more involved in this news and of course we've seen that it's not that straightforward and there's obviously now there's a lot of issues as well with news on social media um, that now we have to counteract a lot of things like misinformation and so on um, but originally, yes, there is some aspect of that, that if you can be the person sharing that content, um, that certainly can be a step in getting you more involved in that content. Um, the question is, does it get other people more involved? Um, and that, of course, is a little bit trickier. Okay, so um, do you, are you equipped to answer that question of does it get other people involved? So we've... Some researchers that I work with, we've kind of shifted over to what happens from the person, the perspective of the person seeing it. Um, and what we find, honestly, is that people tend to feel involved in the things that they already felt involved in. Um, there's a lot of non-findings that we have. So we've tried different experiments of, well, do people find things more credible depending on, you know, if we say it came from Twitter or not? Uh, they kind of find it credible based on what they already thought was credible. Or mm -hmm. in another study we did, do they get more involved when somebody who's close to them shares it versus somebody that they don't know as well, or you know that um, there's some sort of discrepancy between who's sharing it and what source it came from, and maybe that makes them think a little bit more. No, they tended to still be involved in and knowledgeable, more knowledgeable about the things that they kind of already walked in with that they were knowledgeable about and interested in. Um, so that's been kind of the main barrier to break right now is one, how can we get people 
to not just sort of focus on the things that they're already interested in. And two, also, how important is that, right? Like, how much do we need to push people into different spaces than what they've already created an interest in? Okay. And one, one thing you said in, in the paper was um, sharing a news story on Facebook through status updates will lead to greater involvement in the news story content compared to only reading the news story. And my question is, like, what do you mean by involvement? Is it just, like, better retention of the content or um, just becoming, I guess, even more um, passionate about that subject or, like, taking it more on as their own like oh like this is like a mission for me now or like what do you mean by involvement I guess mm -hmm. yeah that idea of involvement um, comes from this experience of you know we get information and then we do something with it um, and so in this case I was really looking at involvement as a way of thinking about how do we relate this information back to ourselves how is this important to us um, so if I see a new story do I think about what it might mean for me do I think about what impact it has, do I think about if it connects to something else I already know. Um, so just kind of going through that mental process of, you know, not just saying like, oh, this is irrelevant or uninteresting, um, but oh, hey, this actually potentially does connect to things in my life. Okay. And also, um, it said, receiving comments on shared content will lead to a greater sense of influence than not receiving comments on shared content by way of feeling a greater sense of community, which makes sense. But my question is, um, when you say um, receiving comments on shared content will lead to a greater sense of influence, what, what, what do you mean by the word influence in that situation? Like influence over like other, over the people who commented or like, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Yeah, and so to put this into context, this was, a decade ago on Facebook, right? So um, at that point, the interest was really, do I feel like I'm an opinion leader in my own network? So mm. an opinion leader being somebody who people might turn to to say like, oh, she knows what's going on about this topic. I would trust her opinion. I would uh, go to her if I have questions about this, right? So somebody might see me as somebody who knows a lot about you know, technology. And so if I post, they're, they're going to maybe comment. I'm going to be like, oh, I influence their knowledge or their decision about technology. Um, so it was really a little bit more about if I see people commenting, then, oh, I must have spurred some sort of interest and discussion in this. And I must potentially be influencing what they think about it or the kind of information that they're receiving. But it was really focused more on your own personal Facebook network. Um, certainly not at the level of what we see now with influencers, right? That's kind of taken that exact same idea, but to the extreme. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something different now, really what I was focusing on, um, but is an interesting extension of that. Why do you think there was this shift from social media being more of like, a personal thing and um, just sharing personal experiences with friends and family and whatnot to this more almost really news outlet for the most honestly because I, I think Twitter had the biggest shift in my opinion um, where at first it was just like oh people sharing thoughts and whatnot and now like that's some people's like go to um, news outlet to find out like breaking news and whatnot and to see like oh what some companies posted to see I guess new news for um, whether that be for new updates on 
especially during like COVID times. Okay, what are the what are the updates now? Like, what are we talking about now? Like, mm-hmm. how are we, do I have to wear a mask now? Okay, so the the city of Houston just tweeted that I have to wear a mask um, mandated by the mayor. Um, so, like, why do you think there was this shift from more personal, private life to more broader news outlet? Mm-hmm. And I think. Twitter is the most interesting space for that because Facebook came in with a very clear like this is where you connect to the people you know and you start those relationships. Facebook has always been really about connecting people you already know, um, whereas Twitter was very open. It was like here's a platform you can type stuff. They just yeah, had no give your thoughts. Just, yeah, <laughs> they they didn't set any real intention of what this site was supposed to be for, and users kind of took it and ran with it. And it has absolutely become a big news. Uh, site now. And I think the reason for that, and also the reason we see, you know, Instagram being the big advertising place now, and um, Facebook being where businesses put their sites now instead of websites. um, I think that's just because that's where the people started going and businesses kind of had to follow, organizations had to follow. And they sort of realized it as a, here's where the audience is now. How do we use this platform to kind of communicate with them in the way that they're communicating with each other? And so it was just this space where we could kind of see the power of, well, people can talk to each other and they can create content. Um, It's very interactive versus older media, which was very much, you know, the news would be produced for you, sent to you, and then you couldn't really respond to it. I mean, you could in a delayed way. You could write a letter to the editor and maybe somebody would do something with that. Um, But not like now where you can just tweet right back at the news station and say, you know, here's another picture I got or that information's wrong or what are you talking about? Um, so I think it was really just, you know, it was this strong communication space for us and the organizations, businesses realized they kind of had to enter that space if they were going to keep up. Um, so it sort of transformed into this news advertising marketing space now. Mm, that's interesting. And, and going off of, of that, um, do you, especially with, I guess, my generation who's really like growing up with social media being like a big part of their lives um and and there's always that question of and even technology as a whole there's always that question of like okay how does that affect our um interpersonal um communication skills um when we do um hop off the computer hop off the phone screen and go in the real world face-to-face interactions so do you and i'm sure there's not too much research because it's fairly um a new new thing but like do you have any thoughts on just like how that would affect um just our interpersonal communication skills and mm-hmm. one more point that I want to want to make is like yeah sure social media gives us that ability to network with countless more people than we would be able to without social media but mm-hmm. like the the quality of communication just isn't the same as if you met someone like face to face. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting points there. And there's a lot of bits of research from a longer time ago that now we're sort of applying to this space. Um, so one um, from, gosh, 20 over 20 years ago, um, Joe Walter, he's a researcher in the field, he did a lot of work at looking at what at the time we just called computer mediated communication spaces. So back then it was like text chat rooms. Um, so not even social media. And there was such a concern about those like, well, you can't 
you can't really understand what people are saying just by text. You can't see their body language, you mm. can't see the tone of the voice. Like, how are you really going to have a conversation? And his research was all about showing that over time, people's relationships felt just as strong and trustworthy just by these text chat rooms as they did in person. So first, there was a lot of research kind of showing like, no, no, these spaces can be as good as. And mm -hmm. I think now we're starting to feel, okay, but wait, are they replacing these other forms now? Now we're kind of going the other direction. We don't need to be convinced anymore that these spaces allow us to communicate. But now the concern is, are we starting to lose those face-to-face -face skills? Do we not know how to communicate without these technologies anymore? Um, and there's been some focus recently on, um, there's something called Dunbar's number. So this researcher basically said that any human can only hold about 150 people in their social network. And that would include everything from the closest friends, which would just be a handful of that, to like everybody that you know from work or from school or that you've met on a sports team. And social media, again, has sort of amplified that. And so now we can have, you know, 2,000 friends on Facebook. But what does that mean? Mm. And that kind of speaks to your quantity quality argument. Um, because I think one thing that people are kind of concerned about now is that we spend a lot of our energy keeping up a lot of relationships that in the offline world may have kind of naturally dissolved, right? So sometimes you meet somebody and then maybe you hang out for a while, you kind of talk to them in a certain context and then that part of your life is over and you know you naturally kind of lose touch with them. And I think that's okay because we can only manage so many relationships. Um, but with social media, we keep seeing, you know, that one acquaintance from that one thing we went to that one time or yeah. the friend from eighth grade who we would have never stayed in touch with, but we see their random memes that they share. And all of that takes our attention and takes our energy. Um, so I think it is a valid concern. I haven't really seen research looking at how it's affected our skills offline, but it's absolutely a conversation that people are having. Um, because as we learn new communication skills, sometimes we do kind of lose other ones, right? Mm -hmm. Something like letter writing, you know, do we all know how to write proper letters and um, how, to, how to communicate via that format? Probably not as much as we used to, so. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting how you said that, that research pointed out that like, it's like, I guess, chat rooms is like the same as talking, or I guess this equivalent to having that face-to-face -face conversation um but I, I feel like <laughs> and, I, and I thought about this a lot I feel like the core of any um relationship is um shared experiences but mm -hmm. there's only so much the only like really shared experience you can have through an online format is a conversation mm -hmm. and I think the, the shared experience of actively doing some activity or something together is is way more um, influential than an online conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we're seeing technology try to get to that point too. So even with things like, um, like the Netflix party app, for instance, right? Like you and I can watch this show together and we're not together, but we'll watch it at the same time. So that's mm -hmm. kind of a mediated shared experience. Or gaming, gaming has always been a huge area for this that people are in the same game environment together at the same time, even though they're not physically together. So I think technology is always trying to get there. Like how close can we get? Um, certainly with virtual reality, right? How far can we go into a mediated space and feel like we are sharing our experiences? 
Um, again, especially now where physically we might not be able to be together. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it's ever going to match face to face. Face to face is always considered the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And so I think the thing we can really do is focus on how many of the elements can we potentially replicate, but also are there, is there anything about technology that might be better sometimes than face to face? Not always, you Mm -hmm. know, we always want to keep face to face, but um, instead of just trying to make it as good as can we do other things that for this particular situation, this is actually more appropriate or this is mm-hmm. more desirable, or this might offer us something that we don't get face to face or that we can't deal with face to face. Yeah. Well, you say like face to face is the gold standard and I totally agree with you, but I feel like there is that, that sense of wanting to make um, um, the internet or technology as a whole equivalent to that face to face. And, and why do you think that is that we're like kind of striving for that goal? Yeah, I think part of it is our, you know, the world we're in, we're a lot more spread out now, maybe just in terms of family. I'm speaking for myself, my family is in two different countries, right? So we have these needs um, business wise, right? There's more and more kind of global interactivity. A lot of times this technology is led by um, the more business aspects of something like Zoom that we're on right now, right? Mm-hmm. That's meant for having meetings across time zones for an organization. Um, But now we're kind of co-opting that and saying, oh, but we can do something personal. And so what have we seen? We've seen Zoom happy hours and Zoom trivia. And I attended a Zoom wedding the other day. You know, we see kind of the extremes of how to use this technology. And so at least right now, it's pretty clear that we're trying to use it to get as close as we possibly can. Um, but why we would do that otherwise is, is an interesting question. And so I think maybe it just has been these situations where for some reason face-to-face doesn't work right now. So let's see what we can do um, to get as close as possible. Well, yeah. And you brought up gaming in that aspect. And, and, I, and I saw one of your, your papers that you talked um, a little about that. I, I didn't get the chance to read it. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what did you investigate in that paper? Um, it's the one you're thinking of. So this is work I did in grad school on um, video games, and we were looking at um, competitiveness or cooperativeness mm-hmm. in video games. Um, this was part of so there. There's a long history of research in video games about how playing, you know, violent video games leads to aggression, things like mm-hmm. that. Right, and right, right. People are starting to kind of move away and focus on more nuanced aspects of video games. Um, so it was part of that. So it's not something I've really continued. Um, but we were looking at, you know, how is it different when you're cooperating versus when you're competing? And I think that's really an interesting space because that's what a lot of the technology now is about. How do we sort of cooperate in these spaces together? Um, and some video games are really the only spaces we are competing, but almost every other use of technology, we are trying to cooperate in some way. Mm. So what did you discover in that paper? I guess what was, I guess what was the most interesting finding for you personally in that paper? Yeah, so that was an experiment as well where we had people come in and they actually played, I think it was Madden, um, it was a sports game. We didn't want like violence. We wanted to see like nonviolent aggression somehow or like not gun focused, but just. Yeah. Um, And so we were interested in what makes people enjoy that experience more. And we found that cooperating tended to make people enjoy that more than competing against each other. Hmm. Interesting. Do you... And, and, and video games is definitely a big thing now, especially during these times. Um, do you think that, um, especially with the aspect of, or most of the time you can you can have a microphone and you can have those 
you can have open communication while playing a game. Do you think that, um, and you, you may not be able to adequate, adequately answer that question, but do you think that, like, I guess, like playing that game, having those conversations, and, and this could go back to the whole chat room thing kind of being as good as um, having that face-to-face conversation. But do you think that like you could build like that online relationship as good as any other like I guess orthodox face-to-face friendship like you can almost kind of make them equal to each other in a way well that's what they're saying yeah and that's what the early um, CMC research showed that as long as people had time that they could get to that same spot so that was the main factor Um, there's a theory called social information processing theory which basically the sort of tagline was you take a sip instead of a gulp. So when you meet someone face to face, you take in all kinds of things about them right away, what they look like, their body language, how they're talking to you. And if you're online, you don't get all that right away and you kind of get it in pieces, right? You you learn to read between the lines. um, You kind of learn their style of typing or the way they use emoji or, um, you know, what they say in response. And so what that research found was that, with enough time, um, people could feel as much trust um, or connection in those relationships. Interesting. And one more thing that came to mind is that, um, so whenever you, like, say you first meet someone online, you, you match or you connect on LinkedIn, you add them as, they, you see them as a mutual friend on Facebook, so you add mm-hmm. them, blah, blah, blah. So you first connect with that person on some social media platform or on the internet, in some aspect compared to oh you just meet someone someone new at work you just meet them at a coffee shop whatever whatever you meet them in person for the mm-hmm. first time <laughs> and and then so we have the online and then we have the face-to-face interaction I, I feel like with the the online um one you if you are conversing with this individual you are more readily able to divulge more i guess like personal information you're Mm -hmm. able to um, feel more comfortable talking about things a lot easier because you're not i guess nervous um, up from that face-to-face interaction compared to that um, face-to-face interaction where you're kind of nervous you're kind of i guess taking it slower than compared to that online interaction you're easing into it you're saying i guess just more surface level stuff where the online one, I feel like you can get more into deeper personal stuff a lot faster than that mm-hmm. face-to-face interaction. So do you think that is, or first, do you think that is, that is true? And furthermore, do you think it's true because of um, just the, I guess, not anonymous aspect of it because you're not really anonymous, just that like lack of face-to-face interaction because of, the nervousness that comes with that or Mm -hmm. why do you think that is? Yeah, um, it's interesting that you mentioned the the kind of disclosing more personal things um, because the that same line of research of CMC did find that that people kind of jumped to more personal questions more quickly um, because they're trying to find ways to connect with people. So again, you know, they maybe can't see what this person looks like. They Mm. can't hear their voice. Um, and so you kind of naturally skip a lot of the small talk. And so that is one thing that they found that people will jump into more personal questions of each other more quickly in this online space. 
because there's that sense of like okay well you know just tell me like you know where are you from how did you grow up like what you know um, tell me your life story. Mm-hmm. And so there is evidence that people do that um, to try to get there a little bit faster. Um, and I think it's partly like what you're saying. I mean, anonymity is very powerful and you're not always anonymous, but if we take it to the extreme, anonymity is very powerful and kind of lets us do whatever we want, right? And that's where we see a lot of the negative effects. So I can hide behind this random username and image and nobody knows who I am. So I can be terrible, but it can also just mean I can feel safe. A lot of support groups, for instance, depend on that. Um, on being anonymous because then you feel like okay well nobody knows who I am so I can say this you know embarrassing thing or I can tell people about this health condition I have that I didn't feel comfortable telling about before Um, so it does allow us to kind of hide not just hide but when you're face to face again you're seeing everything about that person for the most part or you're making quick judgments but if I'm on the computer I can choose which level to disclose right so I can put up a profile picture or I cannot, or I can put up one that says something about me but isn't quite my case. Um, Mm -hmm. Or I can write something in the biography that would be obvious to you if you saw me or you would make an assumption about it, but online you can't. So I can tell you that, but I can also choose to keep hiding it, right? Like age or gender or things that we um, tend to try to identify people with when we see them. Mm -hmm. So I think there is that sense of control of I can decide exactly how much information I'm going to give and at what rate. Mm. Okay. And and going off of that, um, just um, you are, and with social media, you are able to kind of, um, you have control of what you put out there for the most part. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can create this image of yourself. And sometimes that image of yourself may not be the real you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is the real you depends from person to person but do you think that there would be kind of any problems that would arise from you um giving you're you're putting this image of yourself out there that's not really you um so this discrepancy almost Mm -hmm. is cognitive dissonance in a way almost do you like would you say do you know if there are any i guess effects from that Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question, kind of, and I think that's one thing that's coming up right now with social media, um, especially with like influencers, this idea of authenticity, right? So that's more from the the viewer's perspective, like how authentic do I think you're being or do I think, because mm. we're becoming more aware that we present these images. We know that um, things that have filters on them, we know that you picked like the one out of 100 good photos of yourself to put up. You know, we know that you didn't show the rest of the room, just the like the yeah. one part that's nicely decorated. So we're starting to become aware of that. We're starting to learn that people do that. Um, and so I think one thing we're now seeking is that authenticity. So clues that you're not doing that. Um, and that's a good question because the focus on, of that tends to have been more on the viewer, right? Can I see through that lens? Um, but not so much about how does it affect me if I show something that's discrepant. I think that's interesting. Um, In the work that we did on the embarrassment, one of the things that made things embarrassing was if somebody shared something about us that didn't connect to who we were, and then that was more embarrassing. So I think we do seek it to still be representative of our real self or our ideal self. Mm. And if it strays too far, I think that can be uncomfortable. And then that's also where um, we kind of risk it being called out. There's another theory called warranting theory, um, which basically says that 
people tend to believe things about you more that other people can kind of prove about you as well, right? So I could put anything on social media. I could say, oh, well, you know, I traveled to five countries this last week. Um, but if someone, and if I can prove that, so like with a picture or somebody tags me in an event that shows that I was there. And so if other people kind of play into that and prove it as well, then that, that tends to go off better um, versus if somebody else can say, no, you didn't really do that. Or I was just with you here, or what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't work as well. So I feel like we, we tend to kind of shy away from doing those things. And I think we've seen the consequences of people who have potentially faked those kinds of things and how embarrassing that then is to be called out for it. Um, so yeah, that's, but th often those are kind of bigger level, you know, you really weren't doing what you said you were doing. Mm. Um, but on a small scale of just, this doesn't quite match who I am. That's, that's a good question. Sort of what's that experience? Mm, interesting. So going back to kind of that motivation to post a picture um, and this is just true for me in my social sphere um, where I see that the majority of, and by far the majority of posts that I see from, from friend, friend and family are um, primarily females posting compared to males. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that is true in general for most of social media where it's the majority is females posting compared to males? There are a number of statistics, uh, depending on what exactly we're talking about, that show that women tend to do more of that um, than women and or than men. And for me, the interesting question is why. So is it right. is it more about oh women naturally communicate more, socialize more, or whatever, or is it more kind of about the the roles that we've grown up in, right? So are women expected to be the ones who are more social and sharing and and things like that, or are they expected to kind of show themselves in certain ways more than men are. So I tend to think it's more of a kind of social roles that now are leaking out over into social media and we're kind of seeing those happening. So what do we kind of expect of men versus women um, mm. in terms of expressing emotion or sharing things about themselves or looking, you know, showing them looking a certain way, things like that. So I think the gender differences are interesting, but usually say more about um, kind of our societal expectations. That makes sense. It makes sense. So do you think that, um, I guess, do you ever see Facebook, and it's grown so much over the past decade, mm -hmm. do you ever see it being, I guess, just not existing anymore? Like, do you think there's always going to be this um, this need for social media? Or do you think there's going to be a shift to something else? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question, because I think we're always really interested in what social media platform is going to make it and what isn't. Yeah. And we only ever really have kind of a handful. And if you look up, I mean, you can even just look on Wikipedia of social media platforms that have come and gone and there's been hundreds. And so we think of like, why did all these other ones not make it? Why did they not succeed? Um, and so I think there's just, oh, that call's coming in right now. <laughs> you're good, you're good. You can take a minute. Um, okay, yeah, if we pause, we can back up and I can restart that yeah. answer too. Okay, hold on. <laughs> um, if you want, I mean, we can start back at that last question. Right. Uh, shift from, oh, why, why social media um, is successful and why some have not been so successful. Yeah. So Facebook, yeah, Facebook has been around the longest. It's not the oldest, but it's been around the longest at this point. Um, and so it is interesting to think about 
for instance, MySpace or Friendster from like 2002, 2003 is kind of the first one we think of and where did that go? Why didn't that succeed? Um, and so we are always trying to predict why do some platforms succeed and why do others fail? Because most have failed. Most of the ones that um, if you look up a list of all of them, mm -hmm. they're gone. And so we only have these like four or five that kind of stick around. And I think if we knew the answer about which ones succeed and fail and why that, I mean, that's like the golden ticket. Right. Um, but I think one thing about Facebook, about why it has lasted since 2004, and even though we see that, oh, younger people aren't using it as much anymore, all in all, it's still quite powerful. It's still quite present, um, is that they just pivot a lot. So earliest Facebook was um, you could join if you were at a university and really all you could do was put up your picture, your name and what classes you were in and then you could find people from your classes and that was it. There was no status update, there was no news feed, there was no photo albums, um, there certainly wasn't like checking in, there weren't events. Mm -hmm. And so Facebook has always added more and more features that kind of shift along with what we need at the time. So if we went back to a, a site now where we just post on each other's walls and that was it, we'd be like, okay, well, this is kind of boring. There's other things to do. Um, but Facebook always kind of keeps up, right? So now it's also got marketplace. Well, that's where we buy and sell stuff. Um, business pages. Now that's where we go to find out, you know, the menu that a local restaurant has, or that's where I go to see if a restaurant's even open right now, or, oh, they're doing takeout. Oh, and they have a special today. Great. You know? Um, so they're always kind of pivoting, I think, and that's why they've managed to stick around. And so other platforms, I think, to the extent that they do that and kind of keep up with our needs and expectations are the ones that are going to succeed. Mm, so you gotta, you gotta adapt and evolve is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Which absolutely. is totally true. And I definitely see that in, um, in Snapchat, just because there's always a filter that accommodates whatever is going on in, in the present day. Mm -hmm. um, so why do you, and I think this goes back to I guess maybe the social sphere um, of, of the individual but why do you think that um, younger people aren't really getting into Facebook do you think it's more like oh my parents are on Facebook all, all my parents friends are on Facebook that's just not I don't want to be in that sphere of, yeah. of, of social media so I'm going to go to Instagram I'm going to go to Snapchat um, mm -hmm. um, so why why do you think that is true that younger people aren't really getting into Facebook as much yeah and I mean we joke about that like oh well my mom made it here now so you know I'm over it but <laughs> I think there is there is some truth to that in the sense that um, especially for younger people right you want your own network I mean just if we, again, think to offline, right? You don't wanna hang out with everybody you know, you wanna hang out with your friends and you kinda of wanna have your own space to do that. And you wanna talk about your own things and you don't want other people to be a part of that. And so I think that's kind of natural to do that on social media. So at first that was the place because nobody else was there and now everyone's there. So we keep having to find these spaces, right? And so for younger people that might be to kind of be away from who they have to be with during the day. Um, and for other groups, I think we're all finding our niches more and more like, well, here's where this group kind of communicates. And so that works for me. Um, and I don't have to pay attention to all these other groups of people that are there. Um, and I think especially for whatever reason, Facebook is kind of too open and visible and permanent. And so something like I know why Snapchat was such a big deal was because you could just send these pictures that supposedly disappeared, right? And so you could have these much more in the moment sort of private intimate ways of communicating 
that weren't so permanent because one of the things about Facebook is very much like I was saying earlier on that you kind of build up this identity, right? I can go back and look at a picture of you from 12 years ago and that's kind of weird. Um, and now that we're realizing that, that we've built this kind of history on social media, I think we're getting a discomfort with that and going to places where we feel like it's just much more now, right? So that's why we see Snapchat stories and then Instagram and Facebook also got stories. Like, let's just talk about what's going on right now and then sort of let that disappear and move on, which kind of mimics the offline world more again, because if you hang out and have a conversation with somebody, that conversation normally or in the past wasn't recorded and kept forever and popped back up in your memories and was something to share again and refer to. Um, so I think we're seeking a space that allow us to just kind of live in the moment more again. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I have never really thought about how stories do kind of mimic um, face-to-face interactions in that aspect. That, that, that's actually really cool to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you are in the communications department at um, UConn. Um, and so what got you into communications? Because I know I, I just took um, in May, I took an intro to communications and that's when I got into your research. That's when mm-hmm. I started reading some more um, communication-based research. And um, I did really enjoy that that intro class. I it, I thought I didn't really know what communications was really. I kind of just had a guess of what it was, but it was mm-hmm. really interesting when I got to get a broad overview of the basics of it. Um, and also after reading some research in the communications field, it's definitely super relevant and interesting. And it's almost like psychology but not really there there is some um definitely uniqueness to communications so mm-hmm. what got you into communications i guess yeah well it's interesting you mentioned psychology because that's actually my background um so i have my bachelor's degree in psychology um so my undergrad was all psychology and then i originally started my phd in industrial organizational psychology uh which is like workplace psychology mm kind of overlaps with business area sometimes very much about making workplaces work better. Um, But what I was always interested in there was really about how people communicate with each other and interact with each other, um, how they present themselves in the workplace. So things like emotional labor, which is sort of the work equivalent of self-presentation, right? Like if you're in a customer service environment, you kind of put on this face Mm. and interact in a certain way and that that uses up a lot of energy. Um, And so I actually started my PhD in that And then just various reasons, um, didn't quite feel like going forward in that field as much, but had learned about really for the first time while I was already doing my PhD, this field of communication. And so I reapplied to grad school. I was at Penn State at the time um, and joined their mass communications program because what was really interesting to me was this area called media psychology, or that's kind of what we called it at the time. Um, So for me, it was really a shift from the psychology of how we interact in person in these certain work environments to, oh, how do we interact with each other through media or how do we act, interact um, with media in the ways of like characters and things like that. How do we interact with fictional people even? Um, So that's kind of what drew me to that. So communication is a much broader field, of course, that also includes, you know, interpersonal Um, which also has some roots in psychology, right? How do we engage with each other, like social psychology, uh, but also includes organizational communication, marketing, persuasion, all these other things as well. Um, But for me, it was always kind of that focus on 
the psychology of media. Um, and that really is the, the main thing I teach is the big media effects class, which really is essentially the psychology of media. And I, I want to better understand, I guess, some key aspects of the psychology of media. And, mm-hmm. and, and for sure, you, and you definitely see that in um, like, oh, and, and one, one of the ways that I would say that um, I, I quote unquote bond with my mother is that we just at night would just like watch some like reruns of friends on tv mm-hmm. and like if or i like that i there's also that like hey you want to go to the movies with me with the friends you know and so there is i guess that use of media in that way of building relations even though you aren't really talking to each other you're you're watching this and it goes back to that that netflix like party when we can watch a movie together online even though you're not really together together um, so there's that, I guess, that shared experience of watching media and like building that relationship. And I, and I did see some, some research on like, um, like being able to like bond over like a TV show, like, oh, did mm-hmm. you see this week's episode, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, um, so do you kind of want to jump into, I guess, the, the, so if I were to take your, um, I assume, what classes do you teach at UConn? Um, so I teach uh, the media effects course, so effects of mass media. Um, I teach a social media course, um, new communication technologies, and computer media communication. Sometimes. Okay, so if I were to take your effects of mass media, mm-hmm. what would be like, I guess, the core concepts of that class? It's a lot of areas. Um, broadly, I mean, I start the class really with talking about, you know, why do, like, why do we need to pay attention to media at all, right? So stats show that we spend about 10 hours with media every day. Um, so one, it's just worth knowing what it's wow. doing to us to think <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah, because that ranges everything from advertising to something like this, to being on our phones, to listening to music. I mean, media involves a lot. Um, we go through various aspects that have been uncovered over time about things like what happens when we watch a scary movie or what happens when you know kids see violence or sexual content um, but really the the biggest piece of it that's interesting to me is sort of how do we use media to manage um, our lives and so um, for instance there's this idea called mood management right how do we actively use media mm. to change how we feel um, because the shift over time with media effects has again just like with media itself been oh no we're being exposed to all this content and it's having all this influence and over time people realize it's not that powerful right and we have more of a choice in it than people used to think we do um and so how do we actively engage with media in ways that help us and don't help us and that we're aware of and that we're not aware of um and i think you're talking about watching shows together and so on is one of those where we realize it's fulfilling a need beyond just entertainment right it also has social connection yeah, I, I think I, I vaguely remember going over this in my intro class, um, like how we can use media for our own pleasure in that. And I, I definitely see myself do like every like before I go to bed, I need to watch like one episode of something or watch yeah. a little a YouTube clip of something just to like, I guess, I don't know, just to relax and like kind of reset. Um, and I know everyone says, oh, yeah, screen time is bad before bed. Like, you won't be able to sleep. But, like, mm-hmm. I need that, like, I guess that, I don't know, it's it's become a habitual thing where it's yeah. part of my routine where I need something to, I 
calm myself down and just to relax and then I'll be able to go to sleep. Um, and you, and I, I feel like this is true for the most part. Um, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I check my email, you mm-hmm. know, I'm making sure that I'm not missing out on anything because I mean, there have been those situations where I don't check my email. I show up to class and it has been canceled yeah. and I'm like, Oh man, I should have checked my email. So I now check my email every single morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is like, why do you, what was I getting at? I had a point here. <laughs> so, okay. So why do you think that, I guess, how does, and TV shows and movies have always been a big part of, I've always loved movies and, and watching them. So like, I guess from that media aspect, how do you think that contributes to our lives? Yeah, so do you mean like how it, you're saying like how we're always kind of trying to connect to it and we wake up to yeah, it, go to right. sleep to it, things like that, yeah. Um, it just, it fulfills so many of the needs and this is one of the, the debates that we go back and forth on. Um, our media or technologies like our phones, you know, our phones are kind of the main thing that we're all paying attention to now. Um, are those fulfilling needs that we already had or are they creating new needs? Are they filling needs that, other things never filled before. Um, And so that's where a lot of this research, there's a whole line of research called uses and gratifications. That's all about, well, what are those underlying needs that are being met, right? So we as humans have needs all the time. So we have needs to be social. That's just part of who we are. We have need um, to find information, to learn things. That's also just part of who we are. Um, We have a need to relax and just escape and disconnect. And so media can, offer all of these needs. So could other things, but often media are the the easier things to turn to. Um, So in the morning, if you feel like, well, I have a need for information, which I think is normal. We wake up in the morning and we kind of think like, okay, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Um, We could do other things to fulfill that. You could turn on the morning news or, you know, you could call a friend and see what's up. But what's probably easiest is just to open an app on our phone, right? So it's an interesting combination of what are the needs that we have and how easy is something like the phone making it to fulfill those needs um, even if it's not always perfect or even if it's too much but we tend to crave it I think because of the, the things that we want that it gets for us sort of those underlying motivations. Do you and being in the social media um, field for quite a while now do you ever see like people like getting addicted to social media and to a point where like they're like spending like literally like all day on it. Mm -hmm. So the, the term addiction is so tricky because there's, you know, a a biological medical addiction to something like a drug. Um, And so we tend to be cautious about whether we can say you can really be addicted, but we can certainly say that for some people, this type of use is problematic, right? It's disruptive. It is. And I think that's really the key to focus on. Um, whether you're doing it a lot, I don't think it's necessarily a problem on its own. It's, is it starting to interfere with other things? Is it starting to disrupt other things that you're doing? And that certainly does happen to people. Um, and I think that's when you have to manage sort of what are you using it for? Um, and where is it helping you? And where is it starting to take away from other aspects of your life? Um, So I know I always have students look at screen time, right? And there's varying responses like, yeah, I spent six hours on my phone, but it was for all these reasons and I'm okay with that. And then, okay, you know, I don't think we have to worry so much about that number as if we said, 
gosh, I wasted all that time and I should have been doing this and I forgot to go meet my friend and I haven't talked to my mom and, you know, then there's all those other things that are actually the problem. So what is your, I guess, this is going to be a super broad question, but what is your personal view on social media? So in terms of its usage, I mean, I think it plays such an important role and I, but I think it's also so powerful and we just are still learning a lot about where it fits. Mm. Um, I don't think it's all bad. Yes, there's bad sides. I don't think it's all great, but that's true with so many things that are big parts of our lives, right? Everything has um, costs and benefits. Everything has positives and negatives. And so I think right now it's really about figuring out how to use it in a productive way, which doesn't mean like work productive, but is this helping me do what I want? Um, there's this, um, this process that you can go through that's sort of like the steps of, uh, kind of holding back some of the negative effects of media on yourself. And so it's kind of like thinking about what's your goal right now. Um, and is using the social media platform going to help me meet that goal right now or not, whether that is just to communicate with a friend or to get news. Um, it doesn't have to be like a work goal. Um, and so I think it's just this idea of being mindful about how we're using it. So if I'm going to reach for my phone right now, which we do habitually, is there a reason for that? You know, am I thinking like, oh, I need to text that friend. Okay. Or is it just like, I'm just going to reach for the phone and then figure out why I did it. And then that's where we start to potentially waste a lot of time. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting that you that you talk about that reaching for your phone because I, I, I know I do it. I've seen a lot of people do it. It's just a thing we do and, and we tend to do it, I guess, in, I don't want to say, a, I guess, awkward situations, but it's just like a, a filler really mm -hmm. like, oh, like I'm not doing anything right now, but I feel like I need to be doing something right now. So I guess I'll just look at my phone phone because I don't have anything better to do like there's yeah there's, I guess that it's almost in a way I don't want to say limiting my options because I I do have free will so I could go outside and do I could go work out or play a sport or something um, but it, it's just as you said it's just easier just to pick up that phone and be like oh well I'm just gonna look at the news because I need to stay up to date with like current events and and there was a time in the fall fall semester um i did uh which one i deleted instagram mm -hmm. i deleted instagram for like two three months and i did have like a lot more time like i i was i'm i was used to just going on instagram in my downtime and like i would just look at my phone i'm like well, now what do I do? You know, mm -hmm. I don't have Instagram anymore. So I found myself going to like the news app and like, mm -hmm. what am like, <laughs> yeah. And, and there's, there's something, and this is a problem in my opinion for people, for the younger generation and people my age were like, I know I'm not like, uh, currently like up to date with like current events or like politically informed and whatnot. Um, and I think that's, that's a whole nother subject. Um, but like, but like, well, I, I I honestly don't really care that much about like the news and I'm and I find myself looking at the news now like mm. what what is going on and there's I, I think that maybe I became too I don't want to say dependent on social media it was just that like go-to thing mm -hmm. that um yeah I don't, but I don't even know would you consider that a hobby though like I feel like 
hobby is not the right word for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's so interesting because when you're saying like, I'm going to look at my phone and I feel like that has become the activity itself. It's not, I'm going to message someone or I'm going to watch a show or it's, I'm going to look at my phone. At what? Like, what are we looking at? They're just like the looking at is like its own activity, which I found really fascinating. And I think I don't, I don't know exactly the answer to why that in itself is so compelling, right? It contains everything we want and need, but we don't usually say, I want to do this or I want to do that. It's, I want to look at my phone. Um, (laughs) And I think that's, that is the more problematic use. Like you were saying, you know, all those bits of time that we have, that that's where we kind of passively turn to it and go, oh, what's on my phone? Because I'm just waiting in line. And so I think that's where we see more of those kind of negative effects because those are the times where we aren't really being intentional about it um yeah i don't know the exact answer to that but i think it's a fascinating space the, the phone itself now is the the thing i never really thought about that yeah it's just it's the phone hmm. mm-hmm. that's interesting well uh, i don't want to keep you for too long um but thank you for yeah. um taking the time on your day to do this um one last question is are you going to be are you going to do in-person classes in the fall or how's that looking for you personally I'm actually on sabbatical in the fall um so I'm not teaching this fall um I think if I were I'd probably try to do online as much as I could (laughs) um but yeah I know it's a very tricky situation right now but yeah so whenever you did have to make that shift to online just as from a teaching perspective, how was that for you as a teacher, as a professor at the University of Connecticut? Mm-hmm. How did that affect you? Like, did you miss the classroom? Did you miss like seeing your students and whatnot? Yeah, definitely. So in spring, I taught two classes and one was my media effects class, which was 120 people. So that was a lot to shift online. Um, and then the other what is a graduate level seminar, so master's PhD students, um, and that's just six people. So then that was a little bit of a different environment. Um, yeah, I definitely missed seeing people, especially because with the six person class, we still met kind of like this. Mm-hmm. So six of us would get on WebEx. And so we still got to see each other and talk the same way we would sitting at the table together. Um, but for the large lecture class, it's just too many moving parts. So it was all asynchronous, meaning I would post lectures and they would respond and turn in assignments. Um, but there wasn't really anything real time. So I definitely missed that. But it, I was very thankful for how much technology was in place to make all that possible. Yeah, and and that's and it's super interesting because again, like as you said, like this is a form of media in a way, mm-hmm. online learning. Um, and and I wonder, and I know there's research on it. I can't remember the specific paper. I remember like reading slightly, it was a while back. I don't remember this, the specifics of the paper, but it was talking about um, online learning versus in-person learning and how um, the two differed in, and I forget what the paper stated, but mm-hmm. do you by chance know anything about the the two like online learning versus in-person learning and I guess the the pros and cons of that Mm -hmm. yeah I mean certainly just sharing a space can make things a lot easier um what you lose in online learning is a lot of those moments where you can just ask a question really quickly where you can have more of a discussion right so if I'm lecturing 
somebody can raise their hand and ask a question in that moment much more easily than if they're watching the lecture and then they have to like pause and then email me and then wait for an email response um, or something like that. So there's definitely benefits to being in person. And I know my students, I asked them a lot. They echoed a lot of that as well, that online you're just, you're disconnected. And so you kind of start to lose the energy to do the work. Mm. Um, you kind of lose that connection to it because you're not in the same room together talking about it. So yes, you can read it and you can watch the videos, but you're not immersed in it in the same way. Um, so I think that's the biggest challenge and just losing some of that communication that sort of organically happens when you're in the room together. Um, you kind of have to replicate a lot of that and anticipate a lot of it. And that's pretty difficult. Mm. That's interesting. Well, well, thank you for joining me again. I appreciate it. I think that um, your research is incredibly relevant um, to today. And um, obviously there's always, it's, it's so interesting with social media where like, yeah, sure. The research is only five or six years old, but like so much has changed since then. And like, mm -hmm. it's incredible to see social media become what it has become and evolve how it has evolved and i think it's an awesome like really cool um phenomenon really to like um, research um so um i'm looking forward to future research articles from you um and thank you for joining me yeah thank you for having me this is great all right